Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our awesome guest is Steven Anderson, the founder of the Mighty Minds Club and author of Figure It Out, and we're going to talk about information and understanding. This episode is brought to you by Hover, the domain name registrar that helps you brand your next big creative idea. With Hover, you can register a domain name for your design portfolio or creative business, choosing from over 300 domain name extensions. Find your next catchy domain name at hover.com slash UI breakfast. Hi, Steven. Hey, Jane. Great to be here. We're so excited. You have an amazing life story. And can we dive into that for a couple minutes before going into the main topic? Oh, sure. I'll, I'll get to the uh, highlighted version so we don't spend the entire podcast talking about this. <laughs> I, think, I think one thing that I actually skipped when we were chatting earlier is I started off as a high school English teacher right out of college. That was actually what I did for two or three years. And I think the phrase is once a teacher, always a teacher. So what I'm doing now is, is in a way teaching and helping other people learn and stuff. But along the way, in the late 90s, I uh, got started with a dot-com startup. And my entry into the whole UI UX world at that time was as a web and graphics designer. And I did everything from packaging design to the website to the, uh, you know, the, the logo that you get embroidered on your shirt, you know, things like that. Um, and of course, over the last 20 years, uh, you know, that grew to include usability, information architecture, um, strategy, product strategy, things like that. Um, I got very interested in human behavior and psychology around 2007, eight. And um, that led to my first book, which was called Seductive Interaction Design. Um, and it also led to a, a card deck that I self-published called the Mental Notes Card Deck. And the whole idea there and my, my interest at that time was how can we use psychology to create better digital online, you know, what have you, experiences. Out of that, I started being asked to, to speak more at like uh, conferences and events that have to do with conversion, con, uh, conversion and persuasion and, and things of that nature. And I really started questioning did I, you know, put all these ideas in the world to help, you know, companies compel people to buy stuff they don't want to buy? Is that really what, what it's all about? And around 2013, 14, I gave a talk that I think has become the defining talk of my career. Um, and it's called From Paths to Sandboxes. And the idea there was, um, do we want to use all this stuff we know about human behavior to design paths where we convince people to go down the path that we've created? And I used the game Candy Crush as an example of that, where it's a very much a progression-based game and it you know, takes our time and in exchange, they get money and you know, promotion, what have you. Or instead of paths, do we want to create sandboxes? And the idea there is uh, kind of like with Minecraft or these sandbox games, as a designer, you can set up a space where people can then create and discover and make and do amazing things that you could never predict and never anticipate. And so that was kind of the turning point in my career where I was like, you know what, I want to spend the rest of my life designing sandboxes where I create the conditions as a designer where people can do amazing things I could never expect or anticipate. And I think, you know, roll forward a couple of years later, and um, I've been in a variety of leadership positions, but I started seeing my role change. And, um, you know, as a designer, it's hard to, quote unquote, let go of design and being hands on. But I started realizing if I wanted to create uh, and bring into the world some great products. 
I would need to create a great culture that then created great products. And so the new object of design started being humans and behavior and culture and uh, just creating great teams and things of that nature. And that's what I did at the last two jobs. And I can't say I've cracked the code on how to do that uh, successfully. It's it's a learning journey, but um, I would say that's the thing that I think a lot about now is how can you create great teams? How can you bring uh, people together, particularly around really complex topics, and get them to all work together and be their best? So that's um, that's where I'm at today, and kind of what I'm focused on nowadays. Tell us more about your recent book with uh, Rosenfeld Media that brought us together, sort of speaking. And it's called From Information to Understanding. And you have a co-author. So tell us how that worked out. Oh, gosh, yeah. So the book is figured out, Getting from Information to Understanding. I think the subtitle kind of sums up a bit about what we're talking about, that moving from information to understanding. But yeah, I think if one of the things I've done for, I don't know, most of my career is I love to draw pictures and visuals to help people understand things. And uh, I've given workshops over the years on visual thinking and concept models and how to sketch ideas, and, you know, things along those lines. And I think going back, gosh, I don't know, how, it's hard to define things, but seven, eight years ago, I wanted to, to start to figure out why is it when we as human creatures draw pictures, you know, why does that work? Why does it help us understand things? And not just how to draw a bar chart or how to draw like, you know, these, these models that were given, but why? Like, what does it change in our, in our minds, right? To help us understand stuff. And at the same time, I became interested in stories and narratives because in the same way that I can draw something and you can go, aha, I get it. I can also tell you a story or I can use a metaphor. I can say, well, it's kind of like, you know, an iceberg, right? Or it's kind of like, you know, and I can use these examples and suddenly light bulbs go off and people get it. And so, you know, I have here, you know, using visual representations, I have here these stories and metaphors. And at that point, I, you know, I'd been giving some talks on the conference circuit and someone said, you need to meet Carl Fast because you're both talking about similar things, but he's coming at it from a, from a different perspective. And so I met uh, Carl, we started chatting and he, he, he was coming at things from a different perspective that absolutely blew my mind in a, in a great way. And he would talk about something like, uh, let's take a chessboard, for example, and where I had been focusing on how the layout of a chessboard and the, the pieces themselves hold all this information. You know, we can talk about spatial layout. Um, he focused on something that's often invisible that we don't talk about, which are interactions. So if you grab a bishop and you, in a chessboard, you hover over a, a potential square where you want to move and you think about it for a few seconds. I think we've all done this, right? And then you decide to return the piece, right? What did you just do there? You know, cognitively, this is, this is what Carl was focused on. And you what, did something that's not allowed. <laughs> well, you didn't let go of the piece. That's the key. You didn't let go, right? You, you held on to it. And what he would point out is if all thinking happens in the brain, which is, has been the popular idea you know, for many years, many decades, if all thinking happens in the brain, we wouldn't need to, what, like what, what, what just happened there, right? And what he talks about is when, when we take that piece and hover over the space, we're extending our thinking into the environment around us. And it's, a, it's an interaction. And uh, he would call that an epistemic interaction, uh, meaning it's, it doesn't change anything in the world like a pragmatic action would, but it changes something inside us. And so it extends our thinking space. And then we can go on to other examples like rearranging Scrabble tiles or all these ways that we use space and we interact with space and interact with objects to hold meaning. And so then once, once you look at things that way, then we can come back to something we do every day, which is like put post-it notes on the wall and move post-it notes around, right? In a, a, a workshop. And understanding then that the re act of rearranging 
the sticky note in itself is a way of making sense and understanding things is incredibly powerful. So that's, that's three quarters of the book right there. External representations, the prior associations we make, the, how we interact with the world. And then the final kind of quarter is about how we coordinate all those things and how those things are coordinated and work together all the time. And so we talk about throughout the book, how to work with information as a raw material, as a resource, which frankly, very few people talk about. We have these very tactical how-to books, um, but there are very few books that step back and say, well, why does that thing work or not work in the first place? Let's, let's look, turn the mirror around and look at people and creatures and what we know um, that hasn't changed in thousands of years and probably won't change uh, for thousands of years, except when we get you know, Elon Musk's uh, brain implants, <laughs> which, which will change things, right? <laughs> That's absolutely fascinating. And I wonder, it's really meta how <laughs> you applied your own principles about information in your own book about information. So that's great. And th this book can teach you a mindset without and make it practical without actually diving into individual like fields that you can <laughs> apply it in. Yeah, that, that was actually one of the challenges we had as we wrote this. I think originally we signed, so we signed with uh, Lou Rosenfeld, Rosenfeld Media. And I think originally this was going to be uh, the, the typical Rosenfeld Media Press book, but as it went on, we became aware that all right, our audience is more than just more than designers and product managers and your typical product team. This is a book that really most anyone might benefit from reading because what we're trying to do is give a language and a vocabulary to talk about problems with information or information challenges that we encounter every day. And so, for example, in the book, we open, I actually open with a story about a medical sheet that was given from the hospital that was supposed to, it was intended to help us as parents manage our child's um, chronic illness. He is a type one diabetic, um, was diagnosed when he was four. And that's, that's when the story takes place. And the form that they give you to explain how to make sense of, you know, when to give shots and how many carbohydrates to allow in the food and all that stuff. It's uh, really, it's a, uh, um, the information is there, but understanding is not. <laughs> and so, and they're aware of this because they have, they have a nurse come and sit down and that nurse will spend 30 minutes explaining the chart to you. So you know how to use it. And I don't know if, if you're having to explain how to use a visual aid that's supposed to help you, that like, there's a problem right there. And at that time, you know, my, my wife knows I love information design, graphic design, these things. And she, she turned to me after the nurse left the room and said, you've got to fix this. <laughs> and so, so that weekend I did, and I did a makeover and on it and I made a better version that had all the same information that I just changed how it was represented, the alignment, added some icons and things like that. And my goal was I wanted to create a chart that was uh, so easy to understand that our child who was our son, who was four at the time, could look at it on the refrigerator and know exactly what he needed to do at which hour of the day. And so that that's a very practical everyday example. And then you start there and then you start asking yourself, well, what other areas in our life uh, or where else in our life are we surrounded by information that we don't understand or have trouble making sense of? So we were, we were chatting about mics beforehand. And I have learned a lot in the last six months about microphones, lapel mics, microphone mics, uh, these, you know, the Yeti mics like we're using, right? And, and I've had to like, draw out and map out and make sense of this to understand what's the kind of mic I need for my, my situation and my setting. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge of information, right? The information's all out there if you want to spend time reading it, but is the, are there better ways or faster ways to make sense of it, to understand our options and what's the best in my case? So everyday example, right? And then, of course, if we turn to 
product design and strategy and product management and technology. I'm sure we can, I can share lots of examples there as well. So, but that's, that's the basic throughput of the, the book, which is, is how do we work with information as a raw material? And this happens everywhere. I mean, you can look right and left in your world and just discover information that's poorly presented. And if we take it to uh, to the product world, as you mentioned, we as product people, we are so immersed into our own product that, yeah, sure, we, we tell others about it, but it's so skewed and like from we're coming from our alone little world where we think that everyone understands that what we say, and mm-hmm. that is so not true. So what are the those concepts that we can embrace in order to make our story more understandable to people around us who don't have the context, who don't have the same understanding of the field that we do? Yeah, so I think I think one of the things you'd want to ask is are we trying to use are we trying to communicate information so other people can understand it, which which is fine, or are we trying to create the structure or framework so that collectively we can come to understanding? And both are fine. The book covers both of those. In fact, we had to write whether you're communicating or trying to figure out for yourself, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I think if you go back to a team setting, then, um, you know, communication happens all the time where people need to convey information. And oftentimes this is done either through speech, right? Or it's done through PowerPoint presentations or these other, other things that maybe aren't the best, but at least in the case of the PowerPoint, you have a visual. What we would talk about is, well, one, I'm, I'm actually learning through my own career that to shift from trying to communicate ideas all the time to try to set up the structure where we can have a dialogue about things. Because there's so much when you work with other people, there's so much you don't know or you don't see. And so I think it's a bit arrogant to walk into a situation saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's the problem. Here's how you want to solve it. And then wait for people to debate you. And so I've, I've, I've learned to shift from debates to dialogues. So how can I open the space for dialogue? Here's what I think we need to do. But what do you think? Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, it's, a, it's a subtle shift, but I think it's really key. So when you talk about communications and teams, I, you know, I would start really simply and say, you know, who... Uh, let's take a team meeting. I see this happen every day throughout organizations. How many meetings are going to happen today where you're going to walk into the meeting and there's going to be no agenda or no purpose? And, and you know, people are meeting to meet, right? And so one of the things I, I learned to do is just, you know, it's a facilitation technique really is like, if we're going to meet, let's write the purpose of our meeting on on the board so that throughout the meeting, if we're straying from that purpose, we can recenter and get back on topic or we can create a parking lot for things that are off topic. It's a simple act, just writing the purpose. And and if we get meta and get back to the themes of the books, why are we writing it, posting on the wall? Well, it's making that information that we agreed to at the beginning of the meeting persistent. So information is now persistent. It's not in people's memories, but it's actually held in place on the wall, on the whiteboard. And then let's say throughout the meeting, we need to you know, make a decision or we need to explore ideas, then we can do things. And again, I'm picking up everyday examples. Um, we can do things like, well, put all your ideas on sticky notes and let's put the sticky notes on the wall and let's do some clustering and arrange things, right? These are common sort of design thinking or just, just brainstorming activities, right? And what I would comment on then is, okay, by putting information on the sticky notes, you, the sticky notes are out now holding bits of information. Um, each sticky note is a different idea. And then by, we, we tend to overlook this, but the fact that we can arrange these bits of information in different ways and rearrange information in different ways, we are seeing different possibilities. And so we talk about you're interacting with bits of information, kind of like, kind of like playing with Legos or anything else where you're putting stuff together in different ways and seeing new possibilities. And so we're working with information as a material in that sense. 
And then, you know, someone might put a structure up and say, okay, we're going to put things like continuum from great idea to terrible idea, right? So you got an arrow. So now you've created a substrate or you've created this foundation against which to, to arrange things. And the arrangement actually has, has meaning. Oh, and by the way, you're doing this while standing up, right? Everyone got up out of the desk and they're moving around. So there's a whole body of science around um, how we use our bodies to understand and make sense of things. And anyway, I could go on and on and on, but you see how suddenly we can look at an everyday activity, like a meeting, and see it in this entirely different way and see it from a, I think the phrase we use in the book is a dis distribution of cognitive resources. So we've got all these people that represent cognitive ideas distributed throughout this environment, this room, working together, interacting to create understanding. I can't help but link to one of the previous episodes here about the power of workshops with a wonderful guest. So we're going to link to that in the show notes in case people want to learn about the workshop techniques. In your case, what since we were talking about going from monologue to dialogue, what are the right things to do when you want to create this collaborative environment um, that promotes understanding and as opposed to some mistakes that we can make? Gosh, so now we're definitely going to veer off into facilitation territory, <laughs> but uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> which is great. That that's where it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. That's where I've landed since this since this book, and kind of uh, at the end, the last few chapters, I talk about activities to coordinate understanding at the level of groups, particularly distributed groups when you're not even in the same room, and it does start to veer over or bleed over into a lot of facilitation uh, best practices and th things of that nature. You know, I mentioned in the previous example, just starting with a blank a blank canvas, but, uh, or sorry, a blank like whiteboard. But, you know, if you have a structure, uh, a good structure defined ahead of time that can hold information, hold meaning, that's really powerful. So for example, um, uh, we have canvases like uh, the business model canvas, for example, which has nine different boxes and you, it's basically nine fundamental questions everyone should be asking about their business. But because a group of folks decided to turn that into this arrangement of boxes and the arrangement means something, right? Where it's placed uh, on the wall or on the, on the piece of paper, because someone predefined that ahead of time, it's now what I would call a facilitating structure where where you place your ideas actually has meaning. And you can see this is where we lose money. This is where we get money in. This is our value to our customers and so on. So you have this canvas that is the thoughtful design structure to hold information and convey meaning in that. And, you know, just the fact that people can be filling in boxes and one box is empty and no one's putting anything in there reveals that, huh, maybe we haven't thought about this. And, and I share that because I've worked with a lot of startups where I would bring in the, the uh, business model canvas and we'd start brainstorming and, you know, fundamental questions of like, you know, who are your partners? How are you going to make money? <laughs> Had never been answered, right? Or never been explored. It's like, well, the fact that this canvas revealed that this is a blind spot that we need to address is, is a pretty powerful thing. And so canvases, I think abstrain from your original question. But one thing I will mention going back to the example beforehand was uh, the power of, of uh, the just right association. Um, so I mentioned, you know, like icebergs are common in business presentations. And the, the idea being there's stuff we see above the surface and all this stuff below. But in general, I've become really aware of the metaphors and the analogies that slip into our language and how they frame our thinking and sometimes it can be overt and obvious like the comparing something to an iceberg or a tree or or what have you and sometimes it can just be a, a word that we're not even aware is triggering an association or triggering a story that we have about the situation 
but uh, I've become really aware of those. So one example, I, I was, you know, in, in when you talk about teams and marching forward, and we're gonna we're gonna you know get to the finish line and all that. There's this idea of that progress is always one directional. And I remember working with a really great uh, head of product uh, product manager who um, he used a different framing. He said it's kind of like football. Um, we are right there. We're almost at the you know the, the we're about to make a goal, right? But something may happen to push us back. And that's okay. That's, you know, but we're close, right? And I just love the idea that it's not one directional, that we could get have setbacks and that's okay. That's planned for. And so, and that was an overt metaphor, but it was a great way to think about all the progress and the hard work. And that if we don't make this goal in the next play, it's okay. It doesn't mean we've failed. It just means we got to get up and <laughs> see what we're going to do next. American football. Sorry. <laughs> I got to clarify <laughs> that. <laughs> Touchdowns and field goals and all that. Yeah, that reminds me of one of my favorite books, The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, mm -hmm. which highlights the fact that business, life, friendship, whatever you name it, these are not like finite uh, typical games. Uh, you cannot win in life. You typically cannot win in a business yep. if you don't count maybe billion dollar exits. But generally speaking, yeah, it's a long-term game. <laughs> well, even that framing of winning, like I, we talked about this in the book early on when we talked about associations. Like, what is the downside to thinking about business as winning? And what would be the benefit of changing it to something like just staying in the game? Or a metaphor I've liked, particularly when talking about complexity and systems, is imagine we're on a surfboard and we're just trying to stay, stay atop of the wave, right? And surfing. I've used that analogy in conversations around uh, processes where all of our processes, and you know, we have design processes and product processes, they're all rooted, whether we're aware of it or not, they're rooted in this manufacturing mindset that things start off at this raw state and they get released or shipped to the world in a, a polished state. So it's a very manufacturing mindset. I think what we're learning with digital products is maybe that's not the right metaphor or the right frame. Maybe with all the complexity and the ongoing learning that we have with customers in the market and stuff, maybe we should think about more like surfing. Like where we're just trying to stay at top of the wave and listen and be responsive. And to me, like that metaphor of surfing gets to the heart of like what agile big A is probably about, right? Or should be about, which is that constant dynamic learning when conditions are changing and there's emergent properties and, you know, all the things that happen with complex adaptive systems. Yeah. So um, surfing, um, questioning the win <laughs> idea, like d does win mean you like, you know, remove all competition from the marketplace or you dominate them? Is that the right way to think about things? I, I don't think so. I mentioned education earlier on. And in the book, I call out some of the industrial ways that we view education that have been with us for the last hundred plus years. And the idea that we treat students like, like we did factory workers, where you come in, you sit down, you do. That's just not how learning happens. We know, we know a lot more about cognition and learning and how learning social and things. So to treat our schools like factories, they're meant to pump out workers that are ready for the world. Like that's just the wrong metaphor, the wrong analogy, but it's, it's hard to see it when you're swimming in it. All right. We, we don't have that much time left for today. And of course we can't recap the whole book. <laughs> so I'm just going to use it as a reason for asking some of my most pressing hot questions that are related to those moments when we have to rapidly communicate some knowledge into another person's mind. I don't mm -hmm. know. So one of these would be how to do your startup's uh, elevator pitch so that people instantly in 30 seconds get what, what you do. Because I have found this a very hard thing uh, for my, my business and many other businesses. 
Oh gosh. Yeah, you know, that is hard. I will say, you know, the templates you have, they're kind of mad libs where you fill in the blanks, you know, it could be your pitch. It could be your positioning statement. I think those things themselves are a really good structure to organize our thoughts and force things. I know I've been filling out some of those with community management because I'm you know, trying to run a community. And, you know, one of the things that comes over and over again is you have to have at the center, like the purpose of your community and why people are gathered. And so, you know, and those are good reflection questions. I would also say, and going back to the theme of the book, we overlook that dialogue and having a conversation is a way of thinking. And so if you're working on your startup pitch, every time you pitch it, you know, we may say to ourselves, we're testing the pitch, but we're learning, right? So if you pitch it frequently and often, when you get feedback, and it could be feedback in the form of body language or glances, or it could be more direct, like, hey, that doesn't work here. We are learning. So every time you share that pitch, you're learning because dialogue is a form of interaction and a form of thinking. I would say, actually, what helped us ultimately, we did not improve the pitch. We just became relatively known yeah. <laughs> instead. <laughs> so it was. It took about two years of like diff trying different pitches and seeing how they reflect. And everybody was like blanking out a little bit when we talked about you know behavior based email and everything in mm -hmm. his list. And last fall it was a turning point. We showed up at the conference and everybody was like, "Oh, use the list." Yes, you're the founders of Uselist. And we're like, yes, we, we did it. It <laughs> stuck finally. Yeah. So, <laughs> it was not about the, fit, uh, the pitch itself, unfortunately, but it was more about the consistent marketing game. That I will say for all the designers listening, that's something I've had to learn <laughs> the hard way, which is you know, there's this idea that once you say it, it's out in the world, you can move on, right? You've solved the problem. You've helped. And one of the things I learned from my marketing and product counterparts was the importance of repetition and repeating things. And you may think, I've said this a hundred times already. Great. Say it a hundred and first time because there are still people who haven't heard it or people who've heard it, but it hasn't sunk in yet. So that was a big learning point for me was just the value of repeating things, even when you think everyone's heard it. Yeah, definitely. Like this should be written on, I don't know, on the wall for everyone that um, not everybody follows all you create, everything that you create. They yep. literally come with you through very minor touch points. So they might be just having this particular talk and nothing else most likely that that's hard for me i struggle with that personally like because i want to <laughs> i struggle with self-promotion on, on things like twitter and stuff but because uh, i'm like well i put the tweet out there a week ago so you know people saw it right no <laughs> and so learning learning how to say the same thing again but i you know i, I tried to say it differently each time or say, offer something different from people who maybe did see the tweet last week but that's hard and just learning the value of repeating yourself uh, particularly in marketing and promotion. Um, I, I struggle with that one. I'm still not good. <laughs> yeah, we just had a call with uh, Steli Efti as a mentor the other day. And he was like, I'm so tired of repeating myself, you know, follow up on your sales conversations. This is rule number one. Like, I become so boring by repeating myself, but this is so important. And so everybody, if if they just pr preach what, what they think is most important, they... They'll be boring a little bit, but they will communicate the main thing, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> so one of the other things is you mentioned this concept of paths and sandboxes. And yep. as product people, we, we strive to provide sandboxes that people can create with and whatever. But to show the good examples of how they can do that, we've got to illustrate some paths. Is it true? How can you educate people to use your sandboxes with unlimited capabilities? So. Paths that I think 
I think that is the default mindset in almost everything we do. So if you're designing an onboarding experience, for example, we design as a path and we we measure the conversion every step of the way, right? Um, Even emails are part of a path and we hope to get certain responses. I think the challenge I was trying to do with that talk, uh, uh, even though I have a bias for sandboxes, the challenge I was trying to do (laughs) was just get people to stop and see, could we or should we try something different in this case? And one of the one of the litmus tests is is this a space where people need to learn or discover something on their own? And so let's take an example of let's say you're you're applying for a loan of some kind, like a house loan, mortgage loan, or let's say you're choosing a health insurance plan. Uh, the path approach would say let's ask a series of questions, use a wizard, right, and guide people to one of two choices, and they can pick from those two. And that's fine. And there's probably plenty of numbers to show that that converts best and leads people to click one and sign up, right? But my challenge to that mindset would be, okay, when that person picked that particular health insurance package, do they know why they picked it and the pros and cons of it? Can they tell you and explain it? And I would be willing to bet 100% of the time, no. The wizard guided me and told me to do that. So it's the one I picked. And what I would say is, could you have designed that experience in a different way where people could start off with the two dozen? And again, health insurance options are very US-centric things. So I apologize. But anything <laughs> where you've got to make a choice about something that's very important, right? It could be the healthcare plan for your for your someone you love, right? Or you know, a family member. Any place where you've got to choose among options and it's overwhelming, I would say... Could you reframe that and turn it to more of a sandbox where through play and discovery, people could narrow it down to the two options and then not only make the choice, but also be able to explain, I chose package, you know, why? Because of these reasons. And I didn't go with these others. And so once you have that frame or that mindset, like, should people learn or discover something out of this? It reframes everything. And maybe it's the bias of me being an educator, but I started then looking at everything from like car loans and how that's handled to to auto loans to simple things like I don't know choosing the wine to 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 pick with your meal and these are all understanding problems where can we create an environment where people play and interact with things and discover and learn stuff along the way so it's a different mindset and a challenge but I would argue that there are many cases that we treat as paths that we should treat as sandboxes if we want a more I don't know. I'm going to get lofty here, but more cultured and civilized race, human beings, right? I can't help but ask, what is an environment that allows you to play and discover when it comes to a form where you need to pick an insurance plan? How does that translate to real life things, interventions, formats, such as a blog post? What is it? I don't know, presentation, blog post. How can you let people play and discover in real virtual world <laughs> well actually i actually i do have an example of this in the book uh, that I talk wonderful about, uh, with, <laughs> with health insurance plans and the example i i cite it's it's nothing that was ever published or made as a tool but um, i think it's a good example of the kind of things we're missing when i was choosing a health insurance plan for my family as a as a self-employed individual so this is going back 10 years ago i was presented with well over two dozen maybe three dozen options and it was very confusing. And I talk about all the things that made it confusing from uh, labels that seemed redundant to levels of things, all, all, stuff that didn't make sense. And what I ended up doing in the end was um, I arrived at a simple metaphor that everything clicked. So I, I drew, I said, imagine an ocean, right? And we all, we're all swimming in this water, right? This ocean. And uh, way, the way all insurance plans work is like this. While the plan will talk about all about the benefits and the things you get, 
before you get those, you have to reach the deductible, which is how deep you are in the ocean. So we all start off drowning in a sea of deductibles. That's the thing. And the question is, how deep do you want to be drowning in that sea of deductibles <laughs> before you can finally break free and breathe the blue sky of benefits? So simple metaphor, but that metaphor, and I drew it on a piece of paper with the insurance broker, it made everything click into place. I suddenly understood the world of insurance. And then we could draw columns and say, okay, when you're talking about you know, basic coverage over here and their visits to the doctor, that's this thing. When you're talking about uh, medicines and pharmaceutical visits, that's this. So we had suddenly three columns on top of this metaphor of the ocean. And I drew a picture that's in the book. But then I talk about, and this is where uh, a huge opportunity I see over the coming decades, you could turn that with digital tools into an interactive simulation. So you could then preload all the data and all the plans, have a slider to adjust things, put in your own historical data, and you could start to play with possible health insurance configurations and options and save certain ones that look good and then compare them. There's all sorts of interactions and visual displays and things you could do. And, you know, frankly, I don't see a lot of this yet, except on the fringes, but, you know, that's the place we look for, for what's next. And one at near the end of the book, I talk about the work of Nikki Case and what Nikki's doing with explorable explanations. And Nikki will take really complex topics like the idea of trust, or there's a, a great paper on, on desegregation. These really complex ideas, right? And turn these into almost, I hes hesitate to say games, but they're explorable simulations, explanations, things you can literally play with and adjust sliders and run simulations. And you can see what happens over time, you know, sped up very quickly. And it's through the play that you start to see patterns and you start to discover things in a way that if you just read the paper, that the, the desegregation paper, you'd never get. But if you play the game, you totally get it. It becomes obvious like, oh, if we move in more people of this, this color to this, you know, this skin to this neighborhood and we push play and fast forward, this is what happens, right? And you start to see patterns of um, things that often play out over years and decades you see in seconds through this simulation. So I think digital, interactive, playful simulations are incredibly powerful. If we have time, one more example. So I mentioned I do work in schools. One of the most amazing math programs I've ever seen is this uh, math program called ST Math. ST, like the first two letters of my name. Uh, ST Math. And the way they teach math, it's visual, it's interactive, it's playful, and it doesn't rely on text. And uh, the guy who founded it, he said, why are we complicating math by weaving language in so often? Um, and he, I think he had problems with dyslexia growing up. And so he had trouble with math because of language difficulties. And so this program that he's created, it teaches math K through 12. So, you know, from early math concepts all the way through calculus. And the way it works is in, in, uh, almost every case, you're trying to get a penguin from one side of the screen to the other. So it's a game and in playing the game, you'll learn these math concepts. So for example, when you're teaching fractions, the penguins on a unicycle, you know, one wheeled, you know, a little vehicle and the unicycle will have like to be divided into quarters. And as the quarters roll across, you'll see like, oh, that he rolled five quarters. So that's one and a quarter. So you're learning fractions by watching and playing with this playful simulation. And just like games, video games, there's the idea of failure isn't there. You tried something that didn't work. You try again until until you get the success state, the win state. And so the idea of being graded doesn't, you just keep playing until you see the pattern and you see the right solution to move the penguin to the other side of the screen. So it, to me, embodies, again, that sort of playful, visual, interactive, uh, digital simulation. So now I'll take those ideas, what Nikki's doing, what CMath is, is doing, and say, how could we do that next time we build our, you know, whatever our next great startup idea is um, to help people understand things better? 
one thing that one problem with those is that they're always so very often so superficial because let's say there is a traditional way of doing things but now somebody comes in and says oh we got to we got to do innovation there let's introduce digital media and the digital experience and now all of a sudden we're doing the same exact old thing mm-hmm. but there is like an multimedia spin to that and nothing changes but it's all bells and whistles instead how do we make sure that does not happen yeah so now you're getting into a whole nother topic which is like change right expectations so we're used (laughs) to what we're used to and so pulling people into something new is very hard and if you're doing something radically different it's going to struggle right that's just human behavior and so you have to figure out where do we change maybe in a small way to start pulling people to the vision we have ultimately. So we could do a whole nother podcast about that. <laughs> but it might be like seeding some of those ideas. Instead of dumping people completely in this whole different environment, it could be seeding these ideas. So you're reading an article and instead of the data being just static information like the numbers, you can actually adjust a little slider in the data. And so this is work that Brett Victor has been doing with these little interactive, these moments of interaction and then otherwise static report. And you can play with it and see the other numbers in the report change. So that was kind of cool. That was fun. And that's a little change, right? That starts to seed this idea of information doesn't have to be communicated one way. You can actually interact with it and play with it in some different ways. I also think, talking about Brett Victor, you know, the work he's doing and um, uh, before Dynamic Land, which is his latest project, but you know, he he did some work that we talk about in the book where he said we have spreadsheets in one camp, we have word processors over here, we have drawing programs over here, we have coding programs over here. But what if you have an application that did all all of those? So what if I, I don't know, Jane, what your favorite tools are to use? I go to Keynote a lot and I draw these very visual representations in, in Apple Keynote. The problem there is it's it's not it's static. It's a it's a drawing, right? It doesn't change. Well, the thing Brett Victor demoed, I don't know, some five, six years ago was what if you could draw with a digital program like like you know, I, I do with Apple Keynote, like other people do with Sketch or Figma and things. But as you're drawing, actually hook it to real data. So then if you go over and you change the data, it actually modifies the drawing. And there's this bi-directional relationship suddenly. And then that triangle actually has area and has has meaning. And so he basically demos a tool that he built that merges a spreadsheet, a drawing tool, and uh, code programming and uh, all in one. And you can start from any direction. You could start with code and suddenly you have a visual representation and you could keep modifying in code if that's your comfort zone. But if you want to go over and like, you know what, I'm just going to make that a little bit bigger. I'm going to draw this connection. You could literally draw it, but that drawing isn't static. It actually is dynamic. It has meaning. Powerful tool, powerful stuff. And, you know, he worked at the Apple and uh, Apple Innovation Group or something. And I'm sure, I don't know, maybe that's a sign of things to come someday. Who knows? <laughs> Or maybe that's purely his own <laughs> things, but definitely he's he's definitely another person I would say is looking ahead at where computing is going and might go in the future. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. And as we're closing up today's episode, I would love you to tell us about your current key project, the Mighty Minds Club, what it is in a few words. And uh, also, please bake in your understanding of how education should be done these days. Like you've done so much in the field of instructional design that I'm sure you'll be applying some of that in your own product, right? Absolutely. So I'll, so I'll answer your questions in reverse order. So uh, I am. Yes. 
I think this is a great time to play with different ways to do instructional design. Um, in fact, I just sent out a newsletter yesterday and I did a roundup of some things I've come across in the past couple of months. But there's things like how to learn a topic in 30 days with SMS learning, right? That's something I came across that that was neat. There's another guy who was explaining business and technology topics uh, with screenshot explanations. So it's all only what can fit in a screenshot of an iPhone. And that's so it's a very you can see this catering to how can we make break learning down to small digestible pieces that only take a, a minute out of your day, but a minute over 30 days. So you can learn something very complex or complicated. Then there is, I, I just read a, a thing about email, like using email newsletters, like drip campaigns as a way to create courses. So you get an, an email like every three days or something on some topic for say six, six lessons. So I think there's all sorts of experimentation and invention and how to how to, to teach things. I'm doing that myself with the Mighty Minds Club. With I'm using an e-learning platform called Thinkific, but I'm kind of hacking it in ways to do to be more multimedia oriented. So there's a lot of play and discovery and things happening. And those everything I just mentioned was very one way. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening where you bring people together in more collaborative ways as well. You're kind of seeing the evolution of things like Pocket Pinterest with tools that allow you to collect, but also share your knowledge curation and reflect on it and things. So that's a long answer to your first question <laughs> or the second question. As far as the mighty minds go, I'll try to keep it to two sentences or, or less. It's a community of folks who are interested in tools. When I say tools, I mean things like card decks, canvases, simulations, like we talked about. So it's a community of folks interested in tools that bring people into dialogue around complex topics. And the complex topics can be everything from complex systems to and systems thinking to futures thinking to inward things like uh, let's talk about psychological safety or vulnerability or you know when unhealthy beliefs get in the way of of you know moving forward so inward complexity as well so tools to bring people into dialogue around complex topics that's what we're about what is the format? Is it a paid community? Is it a free thing? Is it a newsletter? What is it? You know, we're still figuring it out. We're in our we're in a closed beta right now, and there's about 350 folks, and we're figuring things out. I thought it would be more of a subscription model where I would share or go deep with one tool each month. I'm learning. You know, I can't keep up with that. <laughs> That's a lot, a lot to go deep, like very deep, and read a bunch of books on something every month and interview folks. So I think we're pivoting it and to take the burden off of me and actually make it more of a community. Um, we're doing a lot more salons, um, webinars, uh, panel discussions, things like that, where we can learn from each other, which gets back to the ethos of the group and part of the idea of working and learning together. And one of the things I'm trying to do is just um, encourage sharing ideas when they're half baked and still a work in progress. So for example, I've, I've got a keynote I'm giving at the end of the month for EuroIA, and it's, it's on a topic I'm, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable about. We're talking about hope and confidence and the future and all these things. And so I've got a bit of a canvas or a game I've been developing around this, and I'm bringing the community together on Thursday morning to help me with this. And it's all half-baked, like in that zero to 100% completion, we're talking like 15%, right? But I'm bringing the people there and whoever wants to join me, and I'm like, I'm going to talk a little bit about how I think I'm going to structure the talk. And then I'm, I'm going to listen and put some questions up and learn from this group of folks. Because I guess one of the things that blew me away was when I started looking at people signing up, I was like, oh, yeah, there's the author of that book. And there's that person who wrote that blog post. It's amazing. And then, oh, gosh, you know, she joined. Oh, that's awesome. And I don't want to lose that. It's an amazing community of really you know, mighty minds. And so giving other people a platform to then share their things that they've been developing and working on is, I, I think, uh, a real blessing. 
Thank you so much. So where can people find that and any other of your instances online? <laughs> um, so you can find that about, more about the Mighty Minds Club at themightymindsclub.com. Um, so that's uh, that's pretty straightforward. And right now, um, because it's a closed beta, you can still sign up for the weekly newsletter and I, I, I'll keep you up to date on um, you know, what's happening with the club and things I've been reading. And I have a weekly sort of blog post there. Um, elsewhere, other than that, um, I'm I'm Steven Anderson on Twitter, and I do tweet occasionally, though, um, as I'm doing more stuff with the Mighty Minds, I'm tweeting less and less, the, or I'm tweeting a lot, uh, a lot less these days. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, and have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you, Jane. It was uh, great to be here. 